0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: Now, may I introduce, first of all, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. He's our overseas guest from America. He's a research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology in La Mirada, California. He earned a doctorate in philosophy at the University of Birmingham, England before taking a doctorate in theology from the University of Munich in Germany. He's a popular international lecturer on university campuses. He has authored or edited over 30 books, including his signature work, Reasonable Faith, as well as over 100 articles in professional journals of philosophy and theology. Many of his articles and debates are available online, williamlanecraig.com should be able to remember that. I'm going to introduce uh, Yusuf Ismail at this point also, although he will be coming second. Dr. Craig begins simply because he is proposing the motion that Jesus is both man and God. Yusuf Ismail earned a BCOM law degree from the University of Durban in Westville and received his LLB degree at the University of Natal. He was an advocate for a short period, then went back to the sidebar, and he is now a practicing attorney. Mr. Ismail is also a part-time lecturer in law at UNISA. He is heading the Interfaith Department of the Islamic Propagation Center International on a part-time basis. Here he is primarily involved in discussions focusing on the relevancy of Christianity and Islam in the modern world. Discussions on Christian Muslim relations in postmodern society and the challenges of secularism in the 21st century. Wow. Mr. Ismail has engaged in regular debates on theological issues with a number of leading Christian figures in South Africa, such as Dr. David Seckham, Pastor Glenn Schenkt, and Bob Benjamin, and Dr. Alan Prophet. Last year, he was instrumental in setting up and coordinating a series of debates between Shabir Ally from Toronto and leading Christian apologist in South Africa, John Gilchrist. Over then to uh, Dr. Craig for his opening statement. Please welcome Dr. Craig.
2: Thank you and good evening. I want to begin by saying how uh, excited my wife Jan and I are to be here in South Africa. We have so enjoyed the beauty of the Cape as well as your warmth and hospitality in receiving us. And I'm also very glad to have the opportunity to discuss this very important question this evening with Mr. Ismail. Both Christianity and Islam have an exalted place for Jesus of Nazareth. Muslims are rightly offended by the secular attacks upon Jesus which one finds upon the websites of so-called Internet infidels, and that's their own self-description. These websites popularize the claim that Jesus was just a mythological figure who never really even existed, that he was not born, of the Virgin Mary, this idea being derived from pagan mythology, that he never performed miracles and that he never claimed to be the Messiah. The Muslim, like the Christian, rightly finds these scurrilous claims to be simply offensive because the Quran, as well as the New Testament, explicitly teaches that Jesus was the greatest of all the prophets who had ever lived that he was miraculously conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, that he himself performed miracles, that he healed the blind, cleansed lepers, and raised the dead, and that he was indeed the Messiah. But it's not just that these claims are insulting to Jesus. The more important point is that they are based upon pseudo-scholarship, which is more than 100 years out of date. Contemporary studies of the historical Jesus have come to recognize that pagan mythology is simply the wrong interpretive context for understanding Jesus. Jesus was born and lived in the religion of the Hebrew Bible and it is in that context that he is to be properly understood. This realization has led to what New Testament scholar Craig Evans has called the eclipse of mythology in Life of Jesus research. He says that mythology is no longer seen as a relevant category in Life of Jesus research today. And what you'll notice about these infidel websites is that they almost never cite the primary sources of pagan mythology to support their claims that the Gospels were drawn from pagan myths. And it's no wonder, because when you do read the primary sources, you find that they're not really parallel to the Gospels at all, and that all of the supposed parallels are concocted and spurious. So, the next time someone comes to you claiming that the story of Jesus is based upon pagan myths, you can be sure that that person is either a charlatan or else a pseudo-scholar who is hopelessly out of date. But while Islam and Christianity both have an exalted place for Jesus, nevertheless there does remain this huge difference between them. Muslims regard Jesus as merely human, whereas Christians believe that Jesus was both human and divine. Now, it's important that the Christian claim here be properly understood or confusion will be inevitable. Christians believe that Jesus was truly human. But they do not believe that he was merely human. Christians believe that Jesus had two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. In his human nature, Jesus experienced all of the inherent limitations of humanity—being limited in time and space, being limited in physical strength and knowledge, feeling, exhaustion, hunger, and pain, being mortal. I find that Muslims often don't understand this. They think that if you show passages from the Gospels, which display Jesus' true humanity, such as his limited knowledge or his physical limitations, then you've thereby proved that he's not also divine, when in fact all you've proved is that he is truly human, which Christians agree with. Thus, you cannot refute the Christian position by demonstrating the humanity of Jesus because Christians believe that Jesus was truly human. The question before us this evening is not, Jesus, is he man or God? But rather the question is, Jesus, is he man or both God and man? To refute the Christian position, the Muslim theologian needs to show that Jesus had only one nature, a human nature. On the other hand, the Christian theologian, in order to establish his position, Needs to give some good reason for thinking that Jesus had not only a human nature, but also a divine nature. The problem we face is how to settle this dispute. For the Gospels say one thing and the Quran says another. The Gospels portray Jesus as both human and divine. The Quran insists that he was merely human. So, who's right? Since both Christians and Muslims regard their sacred uh, scriptures as the Word of God and therefore true, we seem to have a standoff here. Is there some way that we can get past this standoff? Well, fortunately, there is. Since Jesus was a real historical person, we can break the deadlock by examining the historical credibility of these contrasting pictures of Jesus. In other words, the search for the historical Jesus can help to resolve the disagreement between Christianity and Islam. Now, in order to determine who the historical Jesus really was, we need to have some objective criteria for assessing our sources. Professor John Meyer, an eminent New Testament historian, lists the following five criteria. one. Multiple independent sources. Events which are reported in independent and especially early sources are likely to be historical. Two, dissimilarity. If a saying or event is different from prior Judaism and also from later Christianity, then it probably doesn't derive from either one and so belongs to the historical Jesus. Three, embarrassment. Sayings or events that would have been embarrassing or difficult for the Christian Church are unlikely to have been invented and so are likely historical. 4. Rejection and execution. Jesus' crucifixion is so indisputably established as an anchor point in history that words and deeds of Jesus must be assessed in terms of their likelihood of leading to his execution as King of the Jews. A bland Jesus who just preached monotheism, which was already accepted by the Jews of his day, would never have provoked such opposition. And finally, number five, coherence. Once we've established a body of facts, then other events can be assessed by how well they fit in with the established picture. Now, when we apply such criteria to the New Testament, we're able to establish a good deal about the historical Jesus. In tonight's debate, I want to discuss just three of the facts that emerge about this remarkable person. Number one, Jesus' radical self-concept. The Quran says that Jesus thought of himself as no more than a human prophet who told people to worship the one true God. However, on the basis of the criteria, it can be shown that among the historically authentic words of Jesus are claims which reveal his divine self-understanding. Tonight I want to look at just two of these. First of all, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. The criteria of multiple independent sources and of dissimilarity shows that this claim belongs to the historical Jesus. Now, most lay people probably think that this title refers to Jesus' humanity, just as the title Son of God refers to his deity. But that's a mistake. It fails to take into account the Old Testament background of the expression. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of a divine human figure, a Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven to whom God will give everlasting authority, glory, and dominion. No mere human being could be accorded such a status, for this would be to commit the sin which Muslims call shirk, which is giving something which properly belongs to God alone to somebody else. Yet this is the status which Jesus claimed for himself probably the most famous Son of Man, saying by Jesus, comes at his trial before the Jewish high priest. And I quote, Then the high priest stood up and asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Every Muslim would have to agree with the high priest and the council that Jesus is a blasphemer who is worthy of death because he has made himself equal to God. Secondly, not only did Jesus claim to be the Son of Man, but he also thought of himself as the unique Son of God. This is a claim that Jesus often makes in the Gospels. We'll look at just three examples. First, Jesus' self-understanding as God's unique son comes to expression in his parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. Even radical, skeptical critics like those in the so-called Jesus Seminar recognize the authenticity of this parable. In this parable, the vineyard symbolizes Israel the owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders and the servants are the prophets sent by God. In Mark 12, one nine, Jesus says, "'A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours." So they took him and killed him. Now, what does this parable tell us about Jesus' self-understanding? It tells us that Jesus thought of himself as God's only beloved son, distinct from all the prophets, God's final messenger, and even the heir to Israel. Even the Muslim apologist Shabir Ali admits, and I quote, The Son obviously represents Jesus, whom God sent last of all, so Jesus is shown to be different from the prophets. He is not one of the servants. He is a beloved Son. Even this is an understatement. In the parable, Jesus describes himself as God's only beloved Son. Jesus did not think of himself as merely another human prophet. Second. Jesus' self-concept as God's special Son comes to explicit expression in Matthew 11:27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's unlikely that the church invented this saying because it says that the Son is unknowable. No one knows the Son except the Father. But in the thinking of the early church, we can know the Son. So by the criterion of dissimilarity, this saying is authentic. But what does this saying tell us about Jesus' self-concept? It tells us that he thought of himself as the exclusive son of God and the only revelation of God to mankind. Finally, another fascinating saying revealing Jesus' sense of being God's unique son is his saying concerning the date of his return. He said, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. It's highly improbable that this saying is the product of later Christian theology because it ascribes ignorance to Jesus. The criterion of embarrassment therefore requires the authenticity of this saying. But here, once more, we see Jesus' consciousness of being God's unique Son. And not only that, the saying also presents us with an ascending scale from men to the angels to the Son to the Father, a scale on which Jesus transcends every human being and even every angelic being. This is really incredible stuff, yet this is what the historical Jesus believed. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. End quote. Number two, Jesus' trial and crucifixion. According to the Gospels, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish High Court on charges of blasphemy and then delivered over to the Romans for execution, for treason, for claiming to be King of the Jews. Not only are these facts confirmed by independent biblical sources like Paul and the Acts of the Apostles, but they are also confirmed by extra-biblical sources. From the Jewish historian, Josephus, and the Syrian writer, Marabar Serapion, we learn that the Jewish leaders made a formal accusation against Jesus and participated in events leading up to his crucifixion. From the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Sanhedrin 43a, we learn that Jewish involvement in the trial was explained as a proper undertaking against a heretic. And from Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, we learn that Jesus was crucified by Roman authority under the sentence of Pontius Pilate. According to L.T. Johnson, a New Testament historian from Emory University, the support for the mode of his death, its agents and perhaps its co-agents, is overwhelming. Jesus faced a trial before his death was condemned and executed by crucifixion. Perhaps the single most egregious historical error found in the Quran is its claim that Jesus of Nazareth was not, in fact, crucified. Not only is there not a single shred of historical evidence in favor of this uh, remarkable hypothesis, but the evidence supporting Jesus' crucifixion is, as Johnson says, overwhelming. Those of us here tonight who are Muslims need to understand that no one who is not already a Muslim believes that the historical Jesus was not crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus is recognized even by the skeptical critics in the Jesus Seminar as to quote Robert Funk, one indisputable fact. Indeed, Paula Fredrickson, whose book From Jesus to Christ inspired the television series by that name, declares roundly, the crucifixion is the strongest single fact we have about Jesus. Number three, Jesus' resurrection. What happened to Jesus after his crucifixion? On the basis of the criteria of authenticity, the majority of scholars who have written on this subject agree that four things happened. Number one. Jesus' corpse was interred in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. As John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University states, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best-attested facts about Jesus. Two. Jesus' tomb was then found empty by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion. Even so hostile a critic as Bart Ehrman recognizes that we have, in his words, solid traditions not only for Jesus' burial, but also for the women's discovery of the empty tomb, and therefore, he says, we can conclude with some certainty that Jesus was, in fact, buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb, and that three days later, that tomb was found empty. Number three, various individuals and groups of people, on multiple occasions and under different circumstances, saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This fact is universally acknowledged by New Testament scholars. Even the skeptical German New Testament critic, Gerhard Ludemann, admits, and I quote, "...it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ." These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. And finally, number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead, and Jewish messianic expectations included no idea of a messiah who, instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies, would be humiliatingly executed by them as a criminal. Two, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to go to torturous deaths for the truth of that belief. The eminent British scholar N.T. Wright observes, If nothing happened after Jesus' death, then any first century Jew would have said he was another deluded fanatic. That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again leaving an empty tomb behind him." As a world-famous Islamicist Kenneth Craig notes, this means that, quote, Muslim writers face a deep historical problem since they are obliged to explain the impact of Jesus in terms of his teachings only the place where the resurrection stands is, for Islam, a blank, yet its sequel cannot be ignored, even if, on the Muslim view, it has to be a sequel without a properly total source." End quote. Now, all of this has enormous theological significance. By raising him from the dead, God has dramatically and publicly vindicated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which Jesus was crucified. As the German theologian Wolfhard Pollenbach explains, the resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning, not merely because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it is Jesus of Nazareth whose execution was instigated because he had blasphemed against God. If this man was raised from the dead. That plainly means that the God whom he had allegedly blasphemed has committed himself to him. But that means that Jesus must have been exactly who he claimed to be, the unique Son of God and the divine human Son of Man. And that's why Christians believe that Jesus was not merely human, but also divine. In summary, then, on purely historical grounds, we've seen, number one, that Jesus of Nazareth possessed a radical self-concept as the Son of God and as the divine human Son of Man. Two, that he was tried, condemned, and executed for his allegedly blasphemous claims. And three, that God raised him from the dead in vindication of those claims. All of this stands in contrast to the Quran's claims that Jesus thought of himself as a mere prophet preaching a blasé monotheism, that he was not crucified, and that he did not, in fact, rise from the dead. When you think about it, however, this situation isn't really surprising. I mean, which would you trust? Documents which were written down within the first generation after the events they record, while the eyewitnesses were still alive, or a book written over 600 years after the events by a person who had no independent historical source of information, why even to ask the question is to answer it. In fact, the Quran contains demonstrably legendary stories about Jesus which evolved during the centuries after his death. I'm referring to stories about Jesus which are found in the so-called apocryphal gospels. These are forgeries which appeared in the second and third centuries after Christ and which the Kagan picks up and allegedly repeats as facts. For example, the Kagan mentions the story borrowed from the legendary forgery called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas of how the boy Jesus made a bird out of clay and made it come to life. Such stories are legendary fictions, and thus the Quran offers us no independent historical source of information about Jesus, and that is why no historical scholar turns to the Quran as a source of information about the historical Jesus. So who is the real historical Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament who claimed to be the unique Son of God and the divine human Son of Man, who was tried, condemned, and crucified for those radical claims, who rose from the dead in confirmation of those claims? Or is it the Jesus of the Quran, an anachronistic preacher of a blasé monotheism? who thought of himself as no more than a human prophet, who did not die on the cross and who never rose from the dead. Praise be to God that it is the Jesus of the New Testament which stands the test of historical investigation.
3: I begin in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. And Mr. Chairman, um, MC, John Smythe, my competitor, Dr. William Lane Craig. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's an immense privilege to be sharing this platform with so eminent an individual as Dr. Craig tonight. And it's my privilege to be back in Cape Town. I must say that um, in half an hour... Dr. Craig has confirmed what I had initially predicted, and that is he has not adduced a single passage or verse from the New Testament where Jesus proclaims divinity, where he says, I am God, or where he says, worship me. In fact, what he seems to be having engaged in is a process of what we would call decontextualization. And so I'm pretty surprised by the weakness of the arguments that I hear this evening. Coming to the topic, identifying Jesus, is he man or both man and God? I think the theme for the program or this evening is a claim or cry by this particular individual called Job. And he says in Job chapter 25 verse 4, how then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that he's born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon and it shineth not Ye the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm, man is described as a maggot according to the book of Job. The son of man, if we have to apply the same particular, uh, you're assuming you want to apply a thousand and one prophecies to Jesus, the son of man is described as a worm, a slightly higher degree. Now, that's a theme for this particular evening, and it's important that some of the statements I make are not meant to offend any particular individual tonight. At the outset, we need to basically come to this particular point, that it's important in a debate of this nature that we look at our source. Without detracting from the debate, if the source is in doubt, then reliance upon that particular source to prove a theological point doesn't prove anything. Many people aren't aware of the fact that what we have as a New Testament is nothing more than an eclectic edition. And I'm surprised that Dr. Craig, as a, a noted scholar, never pointed that out. What the textual critic does is that he selects, he rewrites, or he chooses from a collection of manuscripts to determine what might be the original. Sometimes the selection amounts to no more than an informed guess. Here we have a collection of manuscripts um, different types of manuscripts like the papyri, unseals, curses, minuscules, out of a total of 5,847 manuscripts, you can see that the existing editions of the Greek New Testament use a particular minority, sometimes going down as low as 5%. Why? This is a committee of Bible societies such as Bruce Metzger sitting in the middle um, with a number of individuals, and what are they doing? They're developing the New Testament based on the existing manuscripts. Of the 5,847 Greek manuscripts, no two, apart from the very tiniest fragments, are identical. In fact, up until the 8th century, there's not one Greek manuscript that contains the entire New Testament in its particular order, until, of course, the dated Uspensky Gospels of the 8th century. One can go on further. What about the words of Jesus? Are we in possession of the words of Jesus today? What people and scholars tell us is that Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Greek. Further on, as you can see in Acts 26.14, Jesus spoke to Paul in the Hebrew dialect. Some translators have it as Aramaic. So the problem is that if the source is not reliable, if we're not sure we don't have the original words of Jesus, then how can we go about making these particular claims that he allegedly made. An interesting point to also note is that when we look at the relationships between the synoptic Gospels, (coughs) Dr. Craig subscribes to a theory called Mark and Priority, which I accept, which many fundamentalist Christians will not accept, which is that Mark was the first gospel to be written and then Matthew, Luke and John subsequently followed based upon the works of Mark. As you can see, there's a triple tradition and there's a double tradition. There are passages in Matthew which are taken directly from Mark, passages in Luke and Matthew which are identical, passages which are only unique to Mark. And in accordance with that, Mark is seen to be the primary source. The four gospels in the Christian Bible, if we are to concede that they are the primary available materials for Jesus, then it's important to note that when we compare one gospel to another, we can see how stories, for example, about Jesus were changed to reflect a higher view of Jesus. For example, scholars today, the vast majority would state that the gospels themselves were written not as historical works, but as apologetic works to prove particular theological motifs. If you, for example, compare Mark to Matthew, we can see how the later gospel changed individual reports to raise the view of Jesus in the following ways. For example, passages where people call Jesus Lord. In one occasion when Jesus was transfigured, in Mark, Peter calls him rabbi. But in Matthew, Peter calls him Lord. To have Jesus refer to himself as Lord. When Jesus directed his disciples to wait and watch for his imminent return, in Mark he called himself the master of the house, but in Matthew he calls himself your Lord. Same passage, improvement. Jesus being called the son of God. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks Peter who he thought he was. (laughs) In Mark, Peter says, you are the Messiah. But in Matthew, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So you see, Matthew has added the title, the son of the living God. To have people pray to Jesus. When Jesus was asleep in a boat and the storm rocked the boat, in Mark, the disciples awake. And what do they say? They say, teacher, do you not care we drown? But in Matthew, they pray to Jesus and say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. So the rebuke from Mark on the same incident was changed to a particular prayer. So comparing Mark to Matthew in this particular way, we have seen how Matthew has reworked the material to bring out later Christian teachings. And in fact, the difference is far more pronounced when you go to John's gospel. In John's Gospel, you'd find Jesus makes the most significant and far-reaching claims. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if Jesus said these things, then why is it that the other Gospels would surely have recorded them? They are not there, but they did not because he did not say such things. The man in which Jesus approaches death has also been reworked. In Mark, Jesus begs God to save him from the cross, though he submits to God's decision. But in John, Jesus declares that he will not be prey to be saved in John 12, 27. So we can see that in this way, when we multiply the examples of how one after another the gospels went about modifying the image of Jesus for later readers. And when we compare Mark with the later gospels, you notice the modifications in the later ones. If we could compare Mark with its predecessors, then you would find that Mark has also modified his story. And so this is the actual relationship between the Synoptic Gospels, which I would submit that Dr. Craig would not um, take any objection to in principle because he would subscribe (laughs) to the same view with his scholarship. One last point, the death of Jesus after the Passover, during the Passover, In Mark 14, 12, the disciples ask Jesus where they are to prepare the Passover meal for that evening. In other words, that's on the day of the preparation for the Passover. But in John's Gospel, we are told that Pilate pronounces that sentence on that particular day of the preparation for the Passover. Now, Dr. Craig would obviously have to explain that to us. Why? You know why? Because in John's Gospel, Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. He is that Passover lamb whose sacrifice brings salvation from sins. So in other words, John has changed a historical datum to make a particular theological point. Jesus is that sacrifice. And to convey that theological point, John has to now create a discrepancy between his account and the other particular gospels. So it's important that you need to look at this in context. Do not decontextualize scripture. If you do that, you will do violence to the particular text. The article of faith. In the first century, according to the Apostolic Creed, uh, as articulated by Theodor Zahn, was, I believe in God, the Almighty. That was always the case. Between 180 and 210, the word Father was added before the Almighty, meaning, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, which was obviously bitterly disputed by later churches. Then we have this council. It was church councils that had to declare the divinity of Christ. Incarnation was defined as a doctrine only long after the struggles by the particular church council. It's interesting to note that in an email discussion with Udo Karsten, Dr. Craig refused to discuss the topic, is Jesus God? And he said, well, you have to go back to the actual belief as is found in the Council of Chalcedon, which defined the two natures of Christ, both human and divine. The vast majority of Christian scholars in the world today actually reject the idea. Not because it is difficult to understand, but because it cannot be meaningfully expressed. We have a problem here. If we are to believe that Jesus is both human and divine, which Dr. Craig hasn't spent much time elaborating on, then it stands to reason that everything Jesus has done is done both by the humanity and the divinity in him. So likewise, everything that happened to him happened to both the man and God that he is. Mary gave birth to both. Both died on the cross, etc. Huston Smith is a world-renowned writer on comparative religion. In his book, The World's Religions, he said that the orthodox doctrine is logically incompatible. Why? He says we may begin with the doctrine of incarnation which took several centuries to fix. Holding as it does that in Christ God assumed a human body, it affirms that Christ was God-man, simultaneously, both fully man and fully God. To say such a contention is paradoxical, seems a charitable way to put it. Why? He says it seems more like a blatant contradiction. If the doctrine held that Christ was half human and half divine, or that he was divine in other respects, our minds would not balk. It's interesting to note that in the internet uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on the actual um, TV show by Lee Strovel, Faith on Fire, Dr. Craig conceded in the debate with Rabbi Tovia Singer that the Trinity cannot be found in the Old Testament. You can't derive it, it's not there. The, the existence of the Trinity would be hard to find, hard pressed to find, in, in, to paraphrase what he actually said. I would submit that the same principle would apply in the New Testament, it's not there. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Where about is it in the Bible? Maybe Dr. Craig could inform us. C. Randolph Ross, who's a particular writer, in his book Common Sense Christianity, he debunks the orthodox view, not because it can be difficult to understand, but because it cannot be meaningfully said. He says, to be human is to be finite, limited in knowledge, fallible, imperfect. To be human also means to be aware of one's finitude. If Jesus was human, then he was all of these. And indeed, this is how the gospels portray him. Experiencing anger, fatigue, uncertainty, reluctance, pain, and even death. To be God means to be eternal and unlimited. Now, either Jesus of Nazareth was limited, fallible, or he was unlimited, infallible, and perfect. These two sets of attributes are so opposite of each other, you can't have it both ways. In other words, you can't have your cake and eat it at the same time. He was either one or the other. You can't serve one person that he was both. Now we've got a challenge before us, and perhaps I'm hoping that Dr. Craig could give us in the rebuttal. Unpack before us one model that would demonstrate the two natures of Christ in Christian theology. Show me one model. Some people have tried it using a circle and the aspect or illustration of a square. Let's look at a square or circle representing divinity. That would fail because Jesus is said to be both human and divine. What about a square representing his humanity? That would fail because Jesus is said to be both human and divine. What about an object somewhat round and somewhat square? That would fail because Christ is said to be completely human and completely divine. What about a circle inside a square? That would fail because they say that God became man, not that God was inside the man. What about a square inside a circle? That would fail because man is not said to be inside God. So we're coming back to the question. Dr. Craig would have to, in his rebuttal, show us a particular model. He's written an article called The Birth of God. And it's quite interesting in that article, he suggests in order to prove the divinity of Christ, that Christ's (coughs) divinity was part of his subliminal subconscious. In other words, and he gives the analogy akin to a person suffering from multiple personality disorder. So, are you saying that Jesus was God or divine, but he was not aware of his divinity? It was part of his subconscious, subliminal? Explain and unpack the model before us. That's what needs to be done in the reply. Ah, some would say, Randolph-Ross continues, that's a paradox. But he responds by saying it's not a paradox. A paradox is something which seems impossible, but can be demonstrated to be true. For example, it was a paradox when, um, you know, the, the scientists analyzed bumblebees, and they concluded that according to the laws of physics, they couldn't fly. But the bumblebees continued flying. There was an apparent contra- uh, contradiction and an apparent impossibility, but bumblebees kept on flying. But for an individual to be perfect and imperfect is a reverse of this. It may seem true to some, but is not demonstrably impossible. And not just impossible according to our understandings of the laws of nature, but impossible according to the rules of logic upon which all reasoning is based. Unless we can concede honestly, Dr. Craig can say, look, this is not according to logic, this is according to belief. Be honest and suggest that. Like for example, what we have here. If you were to, for example, um, you know, the Orthodox would basically say that Jesus was perfect with regards to his human nature, uh, 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 imperfect with regards to his human nature, but perfect with regards to his divine nature. The problem with that is that it implies the existence of two persons occupying one body of Jesus, one perfect, the other imperfect, two minds, two wills, two characters. But the creed doesn't allow it. It says that somehow or the other, Jesus was not two persons, but only one. Let me elaborate the last point, that new knowledge can often declare old knowledge to be false. But with the rules of logic, things are different. What is true by definition will always remain true, unless of course you start redefining things. For example, two plus two is equal to four. That equation will always remain true, unless of course you start deciding to change the definition of the component parts. Now by definition, A thing cannot be the opposite of itself. A thing cannot be perfect and imperfect at the same time. The presence of one of these qualities implies the absence of the other. Jesus was either one or the other, but he cannot logically be both. I've got a question for Dr. Craig. I mean, can you get a fat, thin man before that? To say someone is both perfect and imperfect is like saying you saw a square circle or a fat, thin man. Uh, This is an impossible. Are you saying the circle was not round, in which case it was not a circle, or are you saying the square was circular? This is not a paradox, this is meaningless nonsense, however imaginative it may be. That's what C. Randolph Ross concludes. I've got a question for Dr. Craig. When Jesus faced death on the cross, according to Christian belief, did he face it with the human belief that he would be raised on the third day, or did he face it with the infallible knowledge that he would be so raised? If he believed with human faith in God's power to raise him, then he himself was not God. But if, on the other hand, he faced death with the infallible divine knowledge that he would be resurrected, then he was not taking any real risk in letting himself die. Because if the divine nature in him knew he would be raised, but Jesus did not know that, then it was not his divine nature. If the divine nature knew something he did not, then we are back to two persons. So explain that to me. To say someone is both perfect and imperfect at the same time is to say that X and not X can both be true. And that's to obviously abandon logic. Let's look at this, the story of the fig tree. (coughs) Jesus was hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one eat fruit from you again. Now, the problem I've got with this is that It's easy to understand that the human Jesus felt hunger and that the human Jesus did not know it was fixed season and so mistakenly expected the tree to have fruit. A divine Jesus would have known all of this. Now his miracles or the cursing of the tree, they say, are performed by his divine nature. Okay, so let's assume that the divine Jesus cursed the tree. But why? Why ruin a tree which in Mark's view was a perfectly good tree? Come fixed season, the tree would have fruit and others would have eaten from it. The reason was that the human Jesus made a mistake. But why did the divine Jesus act upon the mistake of the human Jesus? Why does the divine Jesus act upon the mistake of the human Jesus? Does the human mind in Jesus guide the divine nature in him? Actually, there's no warrant for all the speculation, for scripture nowhere says that Jesus has two natures. Some will say that everything is possible with God and that we are using words here with their meanings. That's true. Everything is possible. But if you tell me God did such and such a thing, that's fine. But you cannot say that God did and God did not. He is and he is not. Jesus is all-knowing and he is not all-knowing. Jesus is all-seeing and he is not all-seeing. Therefore, I would say impossible. See Randolph-Ross concludes, so the question is this, is that uh, Randolph-Ross continues on this particular point that if you want to wish to redefine some words, that's fine, as long as you can tell us the new meanings. The usual practice, however, seems to be to say that while one cannot say precisely what these new meanings are, one is nevertheless sure they fit together in a way that makes sense. That's simply an effort to duck the requirements of logic. Are you basically saying Jesus is X, and Jesus is Y, X and Y being two unknowns. That's basically to say nothing at all. This is a individual called William Ellery Channing, one of the many Christians who have moved to that scriptural position that Jesus is human. He says, where do you meet in the New Testament the phraseology which abounds in Trinitarian books? in which necessarily grows from the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus? Where does a divine teacher say, this I speak as God and this as a man? This is true of my human mind and this of the divine. Where do we find in the epistles a trace of the strange phraseology? Nowhere. It was not needed in that age. It was demanded by the errors of a later age. This is an interesting figure. This is actually Dr. Craig's doctoral advisor, John Hick. He authored a book with a number of theologians called The Myth of God Incarnate. And in it, what John Hick has come to the conclusion that basically like many theologians, many practicing theologians, that Jesus himself was just simply a man, a prophet of God. Anyone who still has doubt on this particular matter should read that particular book. And no, he's not uh, a modern day Hindu, Dr. Craig, as you seem to suggest with Dr. Badawi. Um, he, he is someone of standing, and this book has been co authored by many other learned theologians. In fact, I, I'm quite interested to know which biblical scholar of note today, um, uh, within one of the major seminaries, in fact, subscribes to the view that uh, Jesus is divine. I'll put the open challenge, and this is a beautiful church. If you can show me one verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am God, or where he says, Worship me or oh, in the context of tonight's debate, I am both man and God. I'm prepared to be baptized tonight. I don't speak for, for my, for my Christ, uh, Muslim uh, uh, brethren here. I don't speak for any, but I'm saying, show me one particular verse where he says that. Is there any greater than God? Does anyone believe anyone's greater than God? Jesus says, my father is greater than I. In John, my father is greater than all. In Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. God is not a man that he should lie. Is God able to do everything? Yes. Jesus says of myself, I can do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the father that sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bear witness, another I mean, if you are saying that his, humani- his divinity was purely incidental, then why is it he goes out of his way to emphasize his humanity? God knows everything, of course. Jesus says, But of that then that hour knoweth no man, no not the angels in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. I see in the lecture which I will be dealing with in the rebuttal section, Dr. Craig seemed to suggest that, well, look, Jesus is now placing himself above the angels. But I think you're reading into Scripture. But besides that, in the Quran, we are even told that man is placed on a higher level above the angels. Why? Because he basically has that choice of free will, which angels don't have. So man is seen as higher than angels. So, in other words, if you were to agree with that, Dr. Craig, then you'd simply be confirming the Islamic belief. God speaks from Himself. Jesus please. Jesus says, "Whatsoever I have heard these things do I speak. The words you have heard are not mine, but the Father that sent me. He had given me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak, even as the Father himself so I said I speak." Thus God prayed. Jesus says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And he fell on his face just like a Muslim would do. In Matthew 26:39. Please, please, please. Thank you, thank you. Give me another definition of the prophet in Acts 2.22. Dear of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye you yourselves also know. A man approved of, Jesus identified as a prophet. It's not necessarily an Islamic belief. It's a biblical belief. That's what the New Testament says. I must walk today and tomorrow, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. A prophet perish outside of Jerusalem? Jesus saying that? What's the belief where Jesus was killed? Where was he killed? Outside Jerusalem? He says here, a prophet cannot perish outside of Jerusalem. No man has seen God at any time. You cannot see his shape or hear his voice. So when he told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father, he must have been meaning something else. Now. The idea that Jesus is the (laughs) Son of God is an idea which basically is a later development. James Dunn, who is a contemporary of Dr. Craig, in his book Evidence for the Messiah, he states that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, statistically, one can determine that there is an evolution in terms of what Jesus said and how is he viewed. For example, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God 47 times and hardly of himself. But in John's Gospel, he speaks about the kingdom of God only five times. In Mark, Jesus speaks about himself, like I am this or I am that, nine times. But But in John's gospel, he speaks about himself a whopping 118 times. When we realize that Mark was the first gospel and John was the last, we can see then that the development in the way Jesus was represented over time. For example, in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to God as the Father once. But in John's gospel, he refers to God as the Father 73 times. In Mark's gospel, he refers to Je- Jesus refers to God as Father three times. But in John's gospel, a whopping 100 and times. So, whereas in Mark, more about the kingdom of God and less about himself. In John, more about himself and less of the kingdom of God. There's an evolution in terms of what we see, in terms of how Jesus represents himself. So, it seems to me that the high priestology where Jesus represented himself as a son of God is thought to be a later insertion. insertion. I mean, Dr. Raymond Brown in his Anchor Bible, uh, Volume 29, and Dr. Paul B. Duff, who is the Chair of the Department of Religion at uh, George Washington University, states that the innovative concept of the Son of God or the begotten Son developed in the fourth century. Dr. Craig um, believes that Raymond Brown is a scholar of note, and Raymond Brown is certainly a recognized scholar in the world. It was injected by Jerome into the Latin Bible to refute the claims made by Bishop Arius and his associates that Father alone was really God and Jesus was made and not begotten. But it's interesting. This is a letter from Paul P. Duff. And what he says that in John 3.16 and John 1.18, the words which have been translated for begotten, um, the actual Greek word is monogonese. Monogonese does not mean begotten. The word ordinarily means of a single kind, and as a result, unique is a good translation. That's the reason why you sometimes find a translation that renders the word only begotten. It has to do with an ancient heresy within the church. In response to the Arian claim that Jesus was made not begotten, Jerome translated the Greek term monogenes into Latin as unigetus, only begotten, uh, so there's absolutely nothing. In fact, we'll deal with the issue of son of God later on. But before we can come to that, look at this quotation in John 20, 18, 16 to 18, when Jesus appeared before Mary Magdalene in the um, after the, the so-called post-crucifixion appearances and she goes and wants to cling on to him. What does Jesus say? He says, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And then Mary Magdalene went and conveyed that particular message to Jesus in respect of that particular point. So with all the discussions that Dr. Craig has given us, he has not been able to basically give us a single point which illustrates that Jesus claimed to be God, where he said that he's uh, divine or commands people to worship him. Of course, you'd find passages in the New Testament which purport to suggest that, but that's not the case. In respect of the issue pertaining to the parable of the wicked tenants and the other so-called discussions, I will deal in the rebuttal section So it does not mean that I concede that point. It's interesting to note that the New Testament that we have it today is an eclectic edition. It's a development which is recognized by the vast majority of biblical scholars. You've got the oldest manuscript, the Codex Sinaiticus dates to when? 400 years after Jesus. And you found that when Konstantin von Tischendorf discovered the Sinaiticus, he discovered something like 14,800 editorial alterations when compared to the existing New Testament in the 19th century. So these are points of note. It's not scholarly to say or speak about multiple independent, multiple attestations when we don't even have the original words of Jesus amongst us. We don't even have the original words of Jesus. Jesus never spoke Greek. He spoke Aramaic. I'd like to end with one particular quotation from um, a particular um, scholar on this point, and I see I've just got one minute left. And he says that, this is Charles Kammer in his book Ethics and Liberation, he says, And this is the message I leave for all of you, Muslims as well as Christians. If we are truly to honor and respect the person of Jesus and live out the implications of his life, death and teachings, we can no longer make claims about the absolute uniqueness of Jesus or the necessity of the encounter with the person of Jesus for human liberation and salvation. To be true to the person of Jesus, his life, love and concern for others, his openness to persons of both sexes and all economic classes, all cultural backgrounds, we must repudiate a Christology we must repudiate a Christology that measures the, op- the measures the worth of persons on the basis of their relationship with Christ alone. I thank you for that time. With all the discussions that Dr. Craig has had, unfortunately he has not proven the point. And I'd be interested in hearing the rebuttal. I'd like to end with a verse of the Quran which says, Wakul ja'al wa batil innal batil zahuka. that when truth comes and throws itself against that which is incorrect, that which is incorrect is bound to fall away. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and God bless you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Craig, and thank you, Mr. Ismail. Now we come now to our first rebuttals Uh, one from each uh, lead debater. And I just want to remind the debaters that the purpose of a rebuttal is primarily to deal with matters which have already been raised by the other side, not to introduce new material. Unfortunately, we haven't got all night, and uh, we need, therefore, to be succinct and concise. Over to Dr. Craig for his first rebuttal.
2: Well, thank you, Mr. Ismail, for those very interesting comments. I very much enjoyed listening to that speech and uh, am glad for the interaction. Please, please, please. Um, Now, before I review the case that I presented in my opening speech, let me comment on a number of remarks that Mr. Ismail made. First, he said that the deity of Christ was the result of the declaration of certain councils in the uh, fourth and fifth centuries, like the Council of Nicaea. This is a gross misimpression historically. What the councils merely did was codify what the church had already believed from the beginning. Indeed in many cases there were heretics that were denying the humanity of Christ that needed to be countered. So the real issue is not what the council said, it's what's in the New Testament and in particular what Jesus believed about himself. Now. Uh, Mr. Ismail then, then says that the classical orthodox doctrine of one person with two natures is illogical, paradoxical, incoherent. You can't have it both ways. Give me a model, he says, of the Incarnation. Well, those are excellent questions, and in fact, I have done just that in my book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, in which I lay out a model of the Incarnation according to which the second person of the Trinity, takes on a human nature in addition to the divine nature he already had, so that he has a full complement of human properties as well as a full complement of divine properties, and is therefore truly both God and man. Now, he uh, asks, was Jesus aware of his divinity? On the model, I suggest, You divide the consciousness of Christ into layers, both a subliminal and a conscious level of consciousness. And I think as a baby, certainly Jesus wasn't aware of everything that he knew in his divine nature. You don't have the monstrosity of the little baby lying in the manger thinking about the infinitesimal calculus or New Testament theology. Rather, he grew in wisdom and stature as he grew older. By the age of 12 we know that he already had a sense of his uh, divine uh, sonship because in the temple visit, when his parents uh, lost him, he said, didn't you know, I must be about my father's business. And by the time his ministry began, as we saw in my opening speech, he had a clear sense of his divine self-consciousness as the unique son of God. Mr. Ismail says, well, can you have a man who is both a fat man and a thin man? Well, if that man has two natures, yes, you can. Let me give an illustration. How many of you have seen the movie Avatar? How how many have seen the movie Avatar? Okay, a few at least. An avatar is another name for incarnation. And this movie tells the story of Jake Sully, who is a disabled Marine (laughs) who becomes an avatar among a race of extraterrestrials called the Na'vi. Now Jake Sully is uh, physically disabled, yet he becomes physically incarnated among them as a Na'vi. At the same time, however, he doesn't cease to be human. So Jake has both a human nature and a Na'vi nature. And these two natures have strikingly, different properties. If you were to say, can Jake Sully run? The answer would be, well, yes and no. He cannot run as in as a human being in his human nature, but certainly in his Navi nature, he can run. Now, if you can make sense of Avatar, then you can make sense of Christ's incarnation. Because in exactly the same way, Christ has both a divine nature and a human nature. And these two natures have different powers. In his human nature, Christ experienced all of the limitations intrinsic to humanity. But in his divine nature, he had supernatural powers. Just as Jake Sully, in his Navi nature, became the savior of the Navi people, so Christ, in his human nature, becomes the savior of humankind. So I think this model makes perfect sense of the incarnation, and there's nothing logical or incoherent about it. Now, um, he asked, what theologians or New Testament scholars today think that Jesus was divine. Well, James D.G. Dunn, whom he quoted, N.T. Wright, John Meyer, uh, Martin Hengel, Wolfhard Pannenbeck, Peter Stuhlmacher, Gerald O. Collins, I could go on and on. There are plenty who agree with the divinity of Jesus. In fact, he said, where does the the Bible (coughs) refer to Jesus as God? Well, I would refer to Murray J. Harris's book, Jesus as God, where he points out nine times where Jesus is called God in the New Testament. Now, what's significant about that is that Jesus didn't go around saying, I am God, as uh, Mr. Ismael would demand, because God, in the Jewish context, typically referred to the Father. And so Jesus doesn't want to say, I am the Father. But what he does do is he calls himself the unique Son of God, who transcends all human persons, he is the divine human son of man prophesied by the, da- uh, by the prophet Daniel, which are claims that, in a Muslim view, would be, frankly, blasphemous uh, for claiming to be divine in that way. But sometimes the New Testament writers, as I say, lose all sense of inhibition, and on at least nine occasions do overtly refer to Jesus as God, ha-theos in the Greek. The most important uh, claim, however, is what Jesus believed about himself. And I propose several criteria of authenticity, which significantly Mr. Ismail accepts. Now, if you accept those criteria of authenticity, the claims of Jesus that I gave all meet those criteria of authenticity. So you cannot deny that Jesus made them. And that puts the Muslim in a very awkward position because Muslims believe Jesus is a prophet, a great prophet, and therefore spoke the truth. But if he spoke the truth, you've got to believe what he said. And he said that he was the unique son of God, different from all of the prophets, God's final messenger, the divine human son of man prophesied by Daniel, and God raised him from the dead in attestation of that fact. Now Mr. Ismail responds at this point, but the text of the New Testament is hopelessly corrupt. This frankly, my friends, is a desperate. Uh, gambit by Mr. Ismail, The New Testament is the best attested book in ancient history, both in terms of the number of manuscripts and in terms of the nearness of those manuscripts to the time it was originally written. Out of the 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament, only about 1,400, that's around 1%, are still somewhat in doubt and even those are utterly trivial, like the difference between your and our. Bart Ehrman himself says textual criticism can get back pretty much to what the authors originally said. So that the New Testament, as you read it today in Greek, you can be confident with 99% accuracy that you are reading the very words that Paul or Luke or Matthew wrote. And to suggest otherwise is simply ignorance. Now, Mr. Ismail makes a great deal of the fact that the synoptics change in their uh, statements of Jesus, that John is different from the synoptics, but all that's irrelevant to tonight's debate because we're not debating the question of biblical inerrancy. I'm staking my claim upon certain specific claims of Jesus that pass the criteria of authenticity, and these are not drawn from John or the later synoptics, they are drawn from Mark, and they are drawn from Q, the source used by Matthew and Luke uh, prior to those Gospels. So that I'm appealing to some of the earliest sources behind the New Testament. Let's look quickly at some of those claims. First, Jesus' radical self-concept as the divine Son of Man. Now, he points out that in Job, the uh, Scripture says the, the Son of Man is a maggot. But the point is that when you look at Jesus' statement, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. That is virtually a quotation out of Daniel 7. It's not a reference to Job. Jesus is claiming here to be the prophesied Son of Man to whom all dominion and authority will be given. What about his claims to be the unique Son of God? I shared the parable of the vineyard. He says, Jimmy Dunn says that there is later developments in the synoptics, but so far as I know, Jimmy Dunn accepts the authenticity of the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. If he thinks otherwise, I'd like to see him show me a statement of Dunn from his recent book, Jesus Remembered, that suggests that. Mr. Ishmael also misrepresents Raymond Brown in saying that the later creedal statements about Jesus represent a development. Certainly, those do represent a development of theological reflection, but that does nothing to suggest that this is not an authentic parable uttered by Jesus of Nazareth in which he distinguishes himself from all the prophets and says he is God's only beloved son. We also saw in Matthew 11:27, 27, Jesus claims to be the Son of God and the only revelation of God to mankind. And then on the uh, saying on the date of his return, we saw again that he claims to be higher than, the, than men, than all the angels, he's in proximity to the Father. He says in the Quran, it says man is higher than the angels because of free will, but that's not relevant. The question isn't what the Quran means, the question is what did Jesus of Nazareth mean? And he's contrasting himself with men who already have free will as well as with angels, and saying that he is in proximity to the father and is the absolute revelation uh, of the father. The trial and crucifixion, we heard nothing from Mr. Ismail yet on that, I grant he doesn't mean he concedes the point, but it has yet to be refuted. And finally, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Most scholars today, on the basis of the criteria of authenticity, accept Jesus' burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. So I think we've got very good grounds, solid grounds historically, for thinking that God raised Jesus from the dead and thereby vindicated and authenticated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which he was crucified. All of this is in contrast to the Muslim view, which is relying upon a document 600 years after the fact, written by a man living in Arabia who had no independent historical source of information about the historical Jesus. I think it's very clear where the historically reliable portrait of Jesus is to be found. It's in those primary source documents that are contained in the New Testament. So I would say, that the pastor had better get the baptismal font ready uh, (laughs) because I I think we have every good reason to affirm the radical self-concept of Jesus uh, as evident in the authentic sayings of Jesus in the New Testament, and we have good reason to believe that those claims are true in light of His miraculous resurrection from the dead.
3: Thank you for that, Dr. Craig, and thank you for that uh, highlighting the movie Avatar. It's quite interesting that in Avatar, Jake Scully basically has two bodies, yet the belief in Christian theology is that you have three persons manifest in one divine being. In the case of Jake Scully, he had his avatar body and he had his personal body, and in the end, His actual bodies existed when they ended up bearing the real body of uh, Jake Scully when he gave it up. So that's not the same in terms of Christian theology. It's interesting that Avatar, according to um, James Cameron, he said he found his inspiration from Hinduism. He found his inspiration from Hinduism. I find that quite remarkable. Coming to the point of, um, about Jesus making himself or making the claim that he was a divine son. But before I deal with that, it's quite interesting to note that Dr. Craig has not given us a model yet, in terms of which he can illustrate that basically Jesus has two particular models. He hasn't even answered the question that when he died, if he believed in human faith, in God's power to raise himself, or on the other hand, did he face death with the infallible divine knowledge that he would be resurrected? Which was it? Because if the divine nature knew something that he did not, then we are back to two persons. Muslims would say that Jesus never committed blasphemy, and I do not have to be um, proved to a skeptic that the Jesus of the Quran is true. It's quite interesting that even though Dr. Craig has raised the issue of the 600 years later, he says, look, it's a bland type of Jesus that is presented, but you can find no particular exception. The Jesus of the Bible, on the other hand, the apologetic of Dr. Craig, and that offered by many apologists, is that the resurrection is presented as a solution to a particular problem. Now, following what Dr. Craig said, if Jesus made these particular radical claims, uh, that he was the son of God in the divine sense, such that C.S. Lewis would say that you would have to choose between declaring him as a son of God or (coughs) declaring him as a liar, If Jesus made those blasphemous claims and following that, Jesus was crucified as a blasphemer. And so it stands to reason that without assuming the resurrection, all we have until we experience the resurrection or proofs of the resurrection is that Jesus died as a blasphemer. Because Dr. Craig admits it. He can't come now and say, well, look, he never made these blasphemous claims. Because then he would be going against what Galatians 3.13 states that Jesus died as a curse. So in other words, if he died as a blasphemer, then there would be no reasons for the disciples of Jesus to believe him at that particular point if he was crucified for blasphemy. The only reason they could turn around is that Jesus apparently Reappeared from the dead. So from where I stand, then it seems that I would be in the same position as the disciples of Jesus. Unless he reappears to me, I would have every particular reason to think that he's a blasphemer. But I don't think so, because the Quran, of course, testifies that he's true. I believe in the Quran and I believe in Jesus. But if I put away the Quran and I turn to the Bible, I would come to the crucifixion, which would prove to me that Jesus was a false pretender. Now, unless we have good reasons for thinking that Jesus would want to resurrect from the dead, or God would want to raise Jesus from the dead. (coughs) Are there any good reasons for thinking that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead? Firstly, why would God want to raise a blasphemer from the dead? And in order to maintain that God raised him from the dead, you can only assume it, you cannot prove it. And so in a circular bit of reasoning, we can only know that Jesus was true if God were to raise him from the dead. And God can only raise him from the dead if he were true but you dr craig would say that he died as a blasphemer so in that case why would god want to raise him from the dead in order to vindicate the claims of a blasphemer that would be theologically impossible according to all kinds of christian theology regarding the parable of the wicked tenants which dr craig had referred to it's interesting to note that in this parable Um, when you analyze the particular story, you will notice how foolish was the behavior of the owner of the vineyard. He sent his servants one after another and knowing that they were beaten and killed, nevertheless he sent his beloved son to the same danger. Although he had full power to act, he did nothing until his son is definitely killed. He's also ignorant of the future because in this parable he naively assumes that the wicked servants will respect his son. So can one now compare that foolish man to God? But that is what the entire story does. That's why it's admitted in the Pelican New Testament commentaries of St. Mark, page 309, that it is unlikely that Jesus told this particular parable. Secondly, if you look at Jesus mentioned clearly, being the heir of the vineyard, that's the thoughts and the very words of the tenant, not the owner. God and therefore Dr. Crave's beliefs are basically accurately matching their beliefs not God's words because that besides that a man can send his son because he's expecting that the tenants will respect him but not necessarily that he is his only son and exactly what the owner did not mention but he did not say my only son. Regarding the issue about the um, that Dr. Craig raised about the facts pertain to the, uh, Jesus being uh, close to God. It's interesting to note that in Islam, a believer is higher than angels, and a non-believer is lower than animals, simply because angels have no desires pushing them to sin, and it is in their nature to always be obedient. And so an obedient human is better than the angels. At the same time, animals have no intellect to utilize like humans. So it's normal to be uncontrollable on their particular desires. I see no particular problem in respect of that. Dr. Craig made mention quite significantly of the resurrection. It's interesting to note that you can point out no less than 41 contradictions in the resurrection uh, accounts alone. It's also interesting to note that the earliest source to mention the appearance of Jesus is Paul. He says, for example, in um, the book of Corinthians, For I delivered you unto first of all, which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. Then he was seen of about the five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this presence. Jesus appeared unto the twelve. Which twelve did Jesus appear to, Dr. Craig? Because at that particular point in time, Judas Iscariot was long dead. There were only 11 left and Matthias was chosen at a little later point in time. Paul had no personal knowledge and he's delivering first of all what he received at Jerusalem from James and Peter. And so the list of appearances seemed to be in chronological order for the words after that suggested, it, but it's noteworthy to mention, that Paul does not mention any appearance to Mary Magdalene or any other woman, nor does he mention the appearance to Ananias. Now the point is that Paul would not have omitted to mention this proof in support of the fact of resurrection if he had known of it, for he was out to establish that particular fact. And so he says that if Christ be not written, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So it follows as a matter of course, that James and Peter must also have been ignorant of those particular facts. What does Dr. Craig say about the 40 so-called contradictions that exist in the resurrection accounts? And I can point them all out. Does Dr. Craig deny that these contradictions do not exist? Does he subscribe to the idea of the inerrancy of the New Testament? What does he say about the fact, importantly enough, that, for example, in Matthew and Mark, The discrepancies regarding the instructions to the woman are that they were directed to inform the disciples that Jesus had gone before them to Galilee, but in Luke there is no such injunction at all, and in John we find no words which could even seem to answer to the command in Matthew and Mark. The persons who came on the sepulchre on the morning of the resurrection were in Mark, Mary Magdalene, and some other woman. In Matthew, only the two Marys. In Luke, the two Marys, and also some other woman. In John, only Mary Magdalene, to whom, however, Peter and the beloved disciples are added. In Luke, Peter alone went to the sepulchre. So that particular passage seems to be spurious and seems to be interpolated to harmonize with Paul. So I don't think it's a red herring to introduce the issue of the resurrection at this particular point in time when we're dealing with solely the divinity of Christ. If you are saying that the resurrection vindicates the radical claims made by Jesus, but then you're going back to the whole argument which we raised earlier on, that in that case, why would God want to raise him from the dead? Because you are conceding that Jesus died as a blasphemer. You cannot now say, well, look, he never made these blasphemous points. You are conceding that he died as a particular blasphemer. And it's quite interesting to note that Dr. Craig admits that the weakest part of his hypothesis is that it is ad hoc in that it assumes that God exists. In other words, it's not a historical hypothesis. It's not a naturalistic hypothesis. It would be so impossible for Jesus to be raised by God. It's only on the hypothesis that God exists exists. Can you then submit to the hypothesis that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead? And then we would want to have a God who would want to uh, raise Jesus from the dead. But again, we go back to the issue. Why would God want to raise him from the dead? Why would God want to raise a blasphemer? It's interesting to note that Bart Ehrman, in his um, Um, discussion about the so-called blasphemous claims in his book, The New Testament. Um, I, I just have to paraphrase the comments. He said that the claims were not particularly blasphemous. If you look at the context of the New Testament and indeed the Old Testament, this word son of God had no divine connotation to it. In Romans 8:14, you read the expression, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words, every Tom, Dick, and Harry who follows the will and plan of God is a godly person. In the language of the Jew, he's a son of God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men, which are of all mighty men of renown. God tells, uh, for I uh, I will declare decree unto thee, the Lord had sent unto me, that thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. In fact, if you have to look at my um, particular um, slides here, Ephraim is described as a firstborn. Adam described as a son of God. David described as a son of God. So if the son of God was a blasphemous claim, we would find that, look, in ancient Jewish terminology, this is in fact how... Jewish prophets are basically addressed. There seems to be no problem with that. I simply asked a question, show me a particular passage where Jesus says, I am God, or where he says, worship me. Dr. Craig says, well, look, uh, he doesn't have to say that. Well, why not? What was he trying to hide? Was he so afraid of his divinity? Why does he go out of his way to emphasize the opposite? Why does he go out of his way to say, my father is greater than I, my father is greater than all, I can of my own self do nothing, as I hear I judge and my judgment is just. Why does he do the opposite all the time at every single particular passage? In respect of the issue of Pagan mythology. It's interesting to note that you'd find Sol Invictus, for example. Dr. Craig says you cannot appeal to pagan mythology or try and find those particular parallels. But people like Sol Invictus, those ancient sun gods, Mithraism, look at these individuals. When were they born? On the 25th of December. When did they die? What miracles did they perform? In fact, Bart Ehrman, in fact, makes reference to an individual called Apollonius who predated Jesus, who had similar characteristics to that exhibited by Jesus. So I think that in the rebuttal, Dr. Craig has not answered any of the points that I had initially raised, nor did he deal with the most important question about what capacity did Jesus adopt when he died on the cross. Was it, did he have, did he believe in human faith and God's power to raise himself, or did he have the infallible divine knowledge that he would be resurrected? Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mr Ismail. Well, now you've been very patient, and soon we will be moving to the second part of the debate. Have your questions ready. But before we do that, we have a further rebuttal, a shorter one, from each of the debaters tonight. The time has come to isolate the issues and distill the issues. And I want to ask Dr. Craig to deal with two questions raised by Mr. Ismail. Uh, first of all, where is the doctrine of the Trinity found if it's there in the Bible, God in three persons? I think we need an answer to that. Secondly, the question that uh, Mr. Ismail raised in his concluding sentence, as he was faced with the board saying, Stop, did Jesus know that he would be raised from the dead? If so, I think Mr. Ismail concedes that is evidence he was God. Dr. Craig, your second rebuttal.
2: Before I review my positive case, let me respond to those questions uh, that uh, Mr. Ismail posed against the deity of Christ. First, he says, you haven't provided a model for the Incarnation. But but I did provide a model, and I used the example of the Avatar as the model of someone who is one person that has two complete natures. Now he says, but in that case, Jake Sully wasn't three persons, even though he had two bodies. Right, it's a model of the Incarnation, Mr. Ismail, not a model of the Trinity. That's not the point. It shows that a person can be one person with two natures which have very radically different properties and that removes all of the uh, charges of incoherence. Now, I'm not used to debating the moderator as opposed to my opponent, but uh, since uh, he did ask about the Trinity in the New Testament, let me say that the Trinity is a doctrine which codifies the teaching of the New Testament that says that Jesus is divine, the Father is divine, and that the Holy Spirit is divine, but that these are not the same person. So there are three persons which are each divine uh, sharing the same nature. That is implicit in the teaching of the New Testament. Did Jesus of Nazareth face death with a human consciousness? Yes, absolutely. And that's why he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and needed to rely upon the strength of his father to meet the terrible test of the crucifixion. And remember how I differentiated in a theologically significant way between the subliminal in Jesus and the waking consciousness in Jesus, which is part of my model of the incarnation. The criteria of authenticity have been undisputed in tonight's debate. So let's turn to those radical claims that Jesus made that are authentic on the basis of those criteria. Notice that Mr. Ismail never denied that the application of these criteria shows these claims to be authentic. First, Jesus' radical self-concept as the divine Son of Man. Again, he reiterates the point, why didn't Jesus go about saying, I am God? Why not? I explained that because to a Jewish mind, that would be to say, I am the Father. And he's not the Father, even though he's divine. So, he is Lord, he is Son of Man, he is the Son of God in a unique sense, but he's not the Father. Bart Ehrman says that it's not blasphemous to say things like uh, uh, "I am the" or that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. The reason that Bart Ehrman doesn't think that Jesus blasphemed at the trial—it's really funny—it's because Ehrman thinks that although the Son of Man sayings are authentic, Jesus was talking about somebody else. So Ehrman is absolutely baffled by the trial scene. He says, "What's the matter with saying you'll see the Son of Man coming on the?" Clouds of heaven, if that's referring to somebody other than Jesus, that's not blasphemous. So Ehrman cannot understand why Jesus is condemned by the council and the high priest for blasphemy. And he even says, you know, only if Jesus were applying this title to himself would this narrative make sense. Right. And in fact, Ehrman elsewhere in his work admits that many of the Son of Man sayings by Jesus are self-designations. So Ehrman's view is just hopelessly uh, self-contradictory. What about the point that the word Son of God can often be used of non-divine beings? Absolutely true, that's absolutely correct. But that's why I labored the point of Jesus' uniqueness claims in being the only Son of God in a special and unique sense that set him apart from other Hebrew kings or prophets or anyone else. Uh, In particular, we saw that he claimed to be the Son of Man prophesied by the prophet Daniel, and that has never been denied in tonight's debate. What about his claims to be the Son of God? First, there is the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard. Mr. Ismail says, but in this parable the owner was foolish. Now, all of us, Muslim and Christian alike, ought to agree that is insulting to God to say that, because Muslims also agree that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament, many of whom were beaten, rejected, and slain. So that's not a point of differentiation between us. He says, but this parable isn't authentic. I beg to disagree. Most scholars do think it's authentic. Just a couple of points in this regard. First, the absence of the resurrection of the slain son suggests that this is not a parable that was invented in the later church, which believed in Jesus' resurrection. Also, the concern over who would possess the vineyard after it was taken from the tenants was not an issue for the early church. Moreover, the parable really reflects the Jewish context of absentee landlords and tenant farmers, and therefore is very authentic to the Jewish milieu in which Jesus lived and spoke. And that's why most scholars think that this is an authentic parable of Jesus, and it teaches that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God, unique, set apart from all the prophets, the final messenger, and that means before Muhammad, that God had sent to the nation uh, of Israel and to to earth as his revelation. Mr. Ismail didn't deny Matthew 11.27 about no one knows the Father except the Son. And as for the time of his return, he merely reiterated the point that in the Quran it says men are higher than the angels because they have free will. But that's irrelevant to what Jesus meant in his first century context where he places himself above men and angels and in proximity to the Father. So we've got very good grounds, I think, for thinking that the uh, historical Jesus had this radical divine human consciousness the trial and crucifixion of jesus the only thing mr ismail said here is that this makes jesus a blasphemer but mr ismail it's only he's only a blasphemer if his claims are false right if they're true then the jews were wrong in crucifying him and god has vindicated those claims raising him from the dead showing that he's not a blasphemer after all mr ismail then begins to recur to the mythological stuff on the internet, like Jesus uh, being born on the 25th of December. Friends, the New Testament doesn't say Jesus was born on the 25th of December. So that can't be a derivation in the New Testament from mythology. Apollonius of Tyana isn't attested until the third century after Jesus. And Philostratus, who wrote the life of Apollonius, was trying to invent a counter-Christian figure so that pagans at that time could have a, a competitor to Jesus when Christianity was beginning to exert itself over the empire. So those aren't in any way uh, uh, refutations of Jesus' historical trial and crucifixion, which, as I said, everybody who's not a Muslim uh, accepts as historical. Finally, what about the resurrection of Jesus? Mr. Ismail says, why would God raise him? I've answered it, to vindicate his claims and reveal his identity. He says there are many contradictions in the uh, resurrection narratives. We're not here to debate biblical inerrancy. The four facts, as I stated them tonight, represent the core of those narratives which are agreed upon by historical scholars and they are sufficient to support the inference of the resurrection. He says your argument assumes that God exists. Of course. We both agree on that. Muslims and Christians agree that God exists. The question is, has God revealed himself, especially in Jesus, or is Muhammad the uh, real messenger of God? And I think we have good grounds for believing it's Jesus. He said, which 12 did Jesus refer to? It was the title of the group, the 12. In the United States, we have an athletic core called the Big 10. But there are more than 10 universities in the Big 10. It's because they originally had 10 universities in it, and the title is stuck with it. Similarly, the 12 is the title of the group, even though Judas had now apostatized. Uh, And finally, he says that uh, this, again, would prove that Jesus was a blasphemer who God had raised. I think not at all. What it shows is that Jesus was wrongly crucified, that he was who he claimed to be, and therefore we can place our faith in him with confidence and assurance that he is God's unique son and the ultimate revelation of God to mankind.
1: Thank you very much (coughs) Dr. Craig, Uh, being an even-handed moderator I've got two questions for Mr. Ismail to deal with in his second rebuttal. Put aside for the moment uh, Mr. Ismail what Jesus has quoted as saying in the Gospels in direct speech, isn't it far more important to discover what the Jews understood him to say? Communication is everything many would say. Uh, I think we'll go away tonight, won't we, remembering not what Dr. Craig and Mr. Ismail said, but rather what we understood them to be saying. And in the light of that, I invite uh, dr. Mr. Ismail to comment on two verses, John five uh, eighteen. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And secondly, uh, John 10, uh, 33. Again, the uh, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Mr. Ismail.
3: Thank you for that, Mr. Chairman. Um, I wish I had another 16 minutes to respond to those two questions, because it could take me at least 10 minutes, or maybe even a minute, depending on how it will go. Interesting to note that our moderator asked Dr. Craig, where is the evidence of the Trinity (laughs) in in the New Testament? And I suggested a particular passage for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the Holy Spirit And these three are one Did you not recognize that dr. Craig? Is that in your particular Bible? Is that passage there for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the Holy Spirit and these three are one It's in my authorized King James version if I open that up here But it's been thrown out as a fabrication in almost every single modern Bible translation that exists. The King James Version says, yet the King James Version has grave defects. (coughs) You find 32 scholars of the highest eminence, backed by 50 different cooperating denominations, who said that this particular verse was a fabrication, and as a fabrication, they removed it. This is a foundation of Christendom, the Trinity. It's not there, the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 7. Yet, many modern day pastors and Christian scholars do not, in fact, inform their congregation. Why? Regarding the actual issue about Jesus being made the Son of God and being regarded as a begotten Son of God, what do you actually understand? What do you mean when you say God begets a Son? In the Quran, the Quran condemns this notion about God literally begetting a son, because begetting is an animal act. It belongs to the lower animal functions of sex, and so as a result of that, God cannot literally beget a son. So the Quran condemns that particular connotation. And as I pointed out, Dr. Craig never disputed the point about the fact that the word in Greek is monogenes, not unigetus in latin and so as a result of that most of the major translations have also thrown out that word begotten as a fabrication therefore that word jesus is the only begotten son of god or for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is no longer there it's been thrown out as an interpolation it's not in any major bible translation then we have got a problem here you say that jesus is the begotten son of god well I have a, a bit of a dilemma there because if you believe that Jesus is the begotten Son of God, we've got your genealogies. I've got the genealogy of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. I've got another genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ according to Luke. Look at this, look at this Dr Craig, contradictory accounts that no Bible scholar in the world today can in fact reconcile. say Jesus is the begotten son of God, then why invent a genealogy for him? Regarding the request by my learned moderator about commenting on John chapter 10 verse 33, it's important to note that every time that there are allegations or accusations about Jesus being referred to as God, what does he do? He goes out of his way to rebut those particular allegations. In respect of John 10:33, the Jews answered and says, For a good work we stone thee not, but for a blasphemy, because thou being a man makest thyself God. Imagine that. What does Jesus say unto them? Does he say, well, I have a right to make that claim because I am God? He says, no, is it not written in your law? I said ye are gods. He was quoting from the 82nd chapter of the book of Psalm. In other words, if he, God Almighty, called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, then the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, if prophets of God were called gods in the Old Testament, men like you and me were called gods, then why do you take exception when the only claim I'm making is that I'm a son of God? As one particular scholar once said, God has got sons by the tons in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So I don't see a point in respect of that. Okay, please, please, thank you. Just just let's respect the particular programme. The other issue is this if one has to look for example at the quotations of Galatians three thirteen, it states clearly and categorically what does it say? It says Jesus died as a curse. So in other words, if you are saying, Well look, he he, he never died as a curse, he wasn't blaspheming, then you are going against your particular scripture. The other point is this, again and again, Jesus is going and emphasizing his humanity. For example, I'll paraphrase the issue about the forgiveness of sins. And they question him, how can you forgive sins? Are you God? And what does Jesus say to that? He says, why do thoughts arise in your mind why do such thoughts arise in your mind which is better to tell a man who's paralyzed get up and walk away or to tell a man who's paralyzed your sins are forgiven why do thoughts arrive in your mind what about john 1 1 in the beginning was a word and the word was with god and the word was god and so they say well look on this particular basis jesus was divine the word was divine, the word was made flesh. But it's interesting that if you go to the Greek, and Dr. Craig knows Greek better than any of us, um, forgive my pronunciation, but in actual fact, it's NRK, ho logos n-ho-logos, logos en pros kai-theos, n-ho-logos. And what does it say? If you, for example, were to look at the uh, uh, Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 92, Philadelphia, such clauses as the one in John 1:1, with an predicate preceding the verb are primarily qualitative in meaning. They indicate that the logos has some kind of divine nature so in other words basically was made godlike, similar to the passage where you'd find in the Old Testament where God tells Moses I will make thee a god unto Pharaoh and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. The point I want to emphasize at the end is this is that in respect of the issue of the Trinity we all have a particular belief. When you say in the name of the Father, or you basically would say according to catechism that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods, but one God. The Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, and the Holy Spirit is Almighty. But there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. The Father is a person, the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person. But they are not three persons, but they are manifest in one divine Godhead. What are you saying? What are you basically speaking? When you say in the name of the father, you have a certain mental picture of that loving father in heaven millions of times. Bigger than I see the pictures out, Millions of times bigger than man. But something like a man, the loving father in heaven. When you say in the name of the son, you have a certain mental picture of that individual with blonde hair, blue eyes, handsome features. When you say in the name of the Holy Spirit, something that came down to Jesus when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus on the river Jordan. There are three distinct mental pictures in your mind. And so hard as you may try, you will never be able to superimpose them and say that they are one. But when I ask... How many do you see? You say you see one. That's not actually speaking the truth. That's not actually being faithful to scripture. In Acts 2.22, what do you hear? "Yea, men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, A man approved of God a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him or through him as you yourselves also know again and again and again Jesus is emphasizing his humanity in fact he goes out of his way to suggest that he's not God when the Jews make that false allegations against him he goes to rebut those allegations at every single particular juncture so without further ado Um, I would like to say that again we see weak arguments being presented which are unsubstantiated and which again go against the scripture. It's interesting to note that Dr. Craig has only given us two quotations and those two quotations are decontextualized. You couldn't show me in more than 45 minutes or more than one hour a single passage where Jesus says that he is God or where he says worship me. Thank you.
2: Well, I was disappointed that in Mr. Ismail's last speech he decided to desert the issues that have been on the table this evening and instead begin throwing red meat to the Muslim uh, partisans in the audience tonight. And those of you who are Muslims and, and who applauded the points he was making really ought to be very ashamed of yourselves. Because those are not the issues tonight. We're not here to debate biblical inerrancy, the genealogies of Jesus, or whether or not the King James Version represents the original autographs of the New Testament. Those are silly points. What we are talking about here is the self-understanding of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that you yourselves recognize to be a great prophet, and therefore whom you must believe as to what he taught, and then whether or not God raised that man from the dead to vindicate those claims. Now, in his last speech, Mr. Ismail made a great deal of certain passages in the New Testament, uh, such as God's only begotten Son and so forth. Let me simply read to you some of the passages in the New Testament that refer to Jesus as ha-theos, as God. John 1.18, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. John 20.28, my Lord and my God, uh, Romans 9.5, Christ, who is God over all. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.18, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.20, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. The testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus is divine. He is God. Now, what about these Trinitarian passages? The New Testament is replete with multitudes of Trinitarian passages. They're not dependent upon uh, the verse in 1 John that he quoted. For example, uh, consider 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. There the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are referred to in the same verse. And over and over again, the New Testament affirms the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet their personal distinctness, which is codified in the doctrine of the Trinity. Mr. Ismail dropped all of his objections to the model I presented of the incarnation, which is logically coherent and understandable. He's never disputed the criteria of authenticity. As for Jesus' radical self-concept, he's reduced to complaining about the number of passages I quoted. The reason I quoted four passages and staked my claim on that is so we could have an in-depth, intelligent discussion of these passages and not just have a barrage of of texts, which would be easy to do but would not be profitable. And he's never been able to refute the point that these passages reveal. Jesus of Nazareth, divine human self-understanding as Daniel's son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and as the Son of God who is unique uh, and set apart as the only revelation of the Father. The trial and crucifixion of Jesus, attested not only biblically but in extra-biblical sources has gone unrefuted. And finally, the evidence for the burial of the empty tomb and the appearances and the origin of the Christian faith were dropped in that last speech. I want to conclude just with a personal word. I myself wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I began to ask the big questions in life when I became a teenager. And the girl who sat in front of me in my German class, who was a radiant Christian, told me about the love of God through Jesus Christ. And I picked up a New Testament, and I began to read the Gospels for the first time in my life. And as I did, I was absolutely captivated by the person, Jesus of Nazareth. There was a ring of truth about this man's teaching that I couldn't deny. And there was an authenticity about his life that was just undeniable. Well, to make a long story short, after about six months of the most intense soul searching, I just came to the end of my rope, and I gave my life to Christ. And his love and presence flooded into my life. I I experienced a spiritual rebirth inside. God became a living reality to me—a reality that I've walked with now, day by day, year by year, for over 40 years—and that's basically why I'm here in South Africa tonight. Because I love to share this good news of Jesus' love for you and the possibility of your knowing God through Jesus Christ. So, if you're a Muslim tonight and you've been seeking for God, but God seems distant and unapproachable to you, and and unreal, you you sense your guilt and your unforgiven sin, I want to encourage you, do what I did. Get a New Testament, begin to read the Gospels, and ask yourself, could it really be true? Could this man be not only a prophet, born of a virgin, one who did miracles, as I already believe, could he be more than that? Could he be the divine Son of God? Come to earth for me to die on the cross for my sin, that I might be reconciled to God the Father. I believe that he was, and I think if you'll look for it with an open mind and an open heart, it can change your life just as it changed mine.
1: Mr. Ismail has the uh, last word on this part of the debate. His closing statement, five minutes maximum, please.
3: Thank you for that enlightening last experiential that you gave us, uh, Dr. Craig. It's also good I met a Hindu friend of mine some time back that gave me a similar experience that he had. We'd like to ask our Christian friends who Jesus was when he was supposed to be dying on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps you will say that's a human part of Jesus, but if you say that, then in that case Jesus was not the perfect sacrifice according to the doctrine of propitiation, as according to the Christian doctrine, all men are born with original sin because of Adam and Eve. So if he was born without the sin, then he would be less than man, and therefore he could not relate to temptation and suffering. You see how one shoots oneself against the foot, and up till this point, Dr. Craig has not answered those particular. He's, he's totally evaded those two issues. I gave you simple examples. Please, please, thank, thank you, thank you for that. I gave simple examples: the issue of Jesus on the fig tree, and the issue of Jesus dying. And Dr. Craig, in his time and his rebuttal, has simply, as if he, I never mentioned those statements at all. It's important to note that the greatest commandment in the Bible and the Quran we want to understand it as emphasized by Jesus on whom be peace when a scribe comes to Jesus and asks Jesus what is the most important of all commandments Jesus repeats word for word what Moses said a thousand years before Shema Israel Adonai Adonai Echad Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one he was not one in a trinity and he used the word echad which Moses used a thousand years before. 600 years later, when a Christian deputation from Najran come to Medina, they spend three days in the mosque, they sleep in the mosque, and over a period of time, they question the prophet theologically. And they ask him now, Muh- Muhammad, what is your concept of God? And Muhammad is made to reply, Qul Ahad." Say he is God, the one and only. If you were to look at Ahad and ikhad, linguistically, they are identical. And so in the line of the prophetic tradition, the prophet Muhammad was continuing the same message that was preached from David, Solomon, Moses, Abraham and Jesus and bringing it to finality. There was no distinction in any of that. It's later inventions, idiosyncrasies that change what people want to read. So it's important that if Jesus knew that God is a trinity, why did he not say so? If you take all the words of Jesus, a red-letter Bible, and you cut off all the duplications, you won't be able to even spell out the word Trinity. Why did he not say that God is one in three or three in one? Instead, he declared again and again that God is one, full stop. True imitators of Jesus will imitate him also in the declaration of God's oneness. They will add, not add three where Jesus never said it. Does salvation depend on this command? Yes, said the Bible. Jesus made this clear when another man approached Jesus to learn from him. The man fell on his knees and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why callest thou me good? There is only one good, and that is God alone. And so by so saying, Jesus made a clear distinction between himself and between others. It's interesting to note and I would say on a positive note to my fellow Christians that according to Shabir Akhtar in his book The Final Imperative a Christian theology of liberation. He says that there are three conditions for being accepted as a Christian. One, belief in the existence of one God. Acceptance of the ethical and religious authority of the historical personage of Jesus Christ. And lastly, a commitment to viewing the life of Jesus as disclosure and human exemplification of the moral excellence of deity, such that the imitation of Jesus' behavior is already a moral action in the behavior's life. If we are to accept that that is the essence of Christianity, in other words, if you want us to accept that, you can qualify as being a Christian without necessarily accepting the divinity of Christ. And that's what the Anglican bishops have done. They say it's no longer a condition to being a Christian, to simply accepting the divinity of Christ. It's becoming a minority view in the Christian world, brothers. It's not a majority view, it's a minority view look at the anglican bishops look at the biblical scholars look at the own bible look at your text where do i see any kind of evidence about jesus claiming divinity again and again and again he emphasizes the point of the oneness of god about the separation between him and god again he rebuts the allegations of the jews when they make accusations of blasphemy against him as he said seeing they see not and hearing they hear not will they then not understand can't we see the truth? Can't we see what we read in the New Testament and indeed in the Old Testament? Where is the evidence that a man can become God when we hear the expression, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent? Thank you for that, and I hope we can continue the discussion on a stimulating exercise. God bless you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ismail. I think it's coming down to this question of whether Jesus is alive today. I would distill it in that way, I think, if I were sitting as a judge. That's the basic issue. Now, that's where I think you can help us from the floor. If you have any personal experience like that of uh, Dr. Craig's, you may want to tell us. The problem is our time. We have to finish at quarter to ten. You have 20 seconds, if you like, to comment, and we value that, and then 10 seconds to ask a question. There are going to be two microphones. They're already here, one there and one there, one in front of Mr Ismail, one in front of Dr Craig. Please choose which debater you would like to question and go to the appropriate microphone. If you want a question, Dr. Ismail, uh, Mr Ismail, come to this one. Dr. Craig, that one. And then I will alternate in taking questions one to the other. The questioner will have one minute to answer and um, the other lead debater will have a moment or two to respond uh, to the comment made by the one answering the question. Is that
4: clear? Mr. Ismail, my question has to do with your claims concerning mythology. How would you deal with a similar accusation lodged towards Islam, that is can we not argue under the same conditions that Islam is simply a derivative of the Gnostic Gospels, the Infancy Gospels, since they are a late uh, uh, edition? And how do we reconcile that with the claims? Because I, I think that your accusations against Christianity can also be turned against Islam. Thank you, Mr.
3: Ish- I think the Gospel of Thomas and Dr. Craig could correct me on that point. You find passages which refer to Jesus. Assaulting people, Jesus behaving in manners which basically contradict his entire prophetic behavioral patterns on earth. So what the Quran would do is that it would basically... um, if if you find, for example, parallels existing in Gnostic Gospels, then I would, with similar reasons, suggest that how do you reconcile the fact that in the existing Old Testament, and indeed in the New Testament, you find, for example, parallels with the epics of Gilgamesh and the Code of Hammurabi, with ancient texts. Um, Many particular scholars, modern-day scholars, would suggest that um, some of these particular writings cannot entirely be rejected. That's why even the existing gospels draw some of the information and the material from that. In respect of the issue of um, uh, the quotations given by Dr. Craig pertaining to the passages found in Surah Maryam, I mean, those particular passages are used to convey certain moral points, certain moral systems. For example, his first miracle in the Quran, where he basically defends the false accusations against his mother. The first miracle in the Bible is you'd find him, for example, turning water into wine. So more often than not, you find that sometimes even from the Quranic point of view, these passages are there to convey certain moral points and value systems. But I don't have any kind of um, um, criteria, one cannot just simply reject passages um, just on the basis that the Gnostic Gospels, or they come from the Gnostic Gospels, when did the New Testament come? I mean, when was the first dated, earliest dated New Testament? It was in the 8th century. Ten seconds, yourself please. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Craig, do you wish to respond? You have one minute if you do. Sure,
2: the the point that I was making there was that when you compare the Quran to the New Testament as a historical source for the life of Jesus, it's just incomparably poorer. It comes 600 years after the event, written by a man living in Arabia who had no independent source of historical information, and he unwittingly picks up these demonstrably legendary stories from the apocryphal gospels. And the Quran doesn't so much correct the infancy gospel of Thomas as it simply excerpts from it and repeats these miracle stories about the boy Jesus thinking that these are historical and not knowing that in fact these are legendary forgeries that arose two or three hundred years after Christ that was the point I was making thank you dr. Craig now a question to dr.
1: Craig from the lady on my left
0: dr. Craig I would like to know
2: if Jesus was a Christian um, a Jew when did he become a Christian If Jesus was a Jew, when did he become a Christian? Is that the question? He never became a Christian. Jesus was Jewish through and through. All the disciples were Jewish. The early Christianity was Jewish. It wasn't until Antioch, in the city of Antioch, that people called these Messianic Jews uh, Christians. And what does that mean? Well, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And so they were called Messianics. Uh, Messianic followers of Jesus Um, and many Jews today I I was just in Israel last year call themselves the Jewish equivalent they call themselves Messianics so Christianity is from its earliest roots Jewish uh, right through and through but The Jews, uh, the rabbinical Jews, that is to say, eventually rejected these Messianics and said, you you can't be part of the synagogue, and they anathematized them and and kicked them out. But I, I in a sense, consider myself more Jewish than many modern-day ethnic Jews who are atheists or agnostics and don't believe in God. Thank you very much. Uh, Next question. Sorry,
3: could I have a reply to that? Thank you. Yeah, in in respect of the issue of Christians, it's interesting to note that in Acts chapter 11 verse 26, when the disciples are called Christians first in Antioch, that term Christian is used as a label of abuse that these are Christians. It's a label of abuse. Read the context, what happened in Antioch. And the point is that this is a distinction between Islam and Christianity, that whilst Islam and Muslim is not a generic term, it means peace acquires the submission to the will of God. Christianity is not a generic term, it's a label. And so if Jesus was here amongst us, he wouldn't recognize the term Christian, nor would he recognize the term Jesus because he was not a Greek-speaking Jew. He spoke Aramaic, and so it goes back to the issue that we don't even have the original words of Jesus, nor do we, in fact, have his original sayings. And that Christian is a label. Thank you, Yusuf. Now, uh, your question from the gentleman on my right. Yeah, it's it's not really a question, it's more of a a general statement to all unbelievers or or people that don't believe in Jesus. Um, Basically, a model for the Trinity, I believe, it can be seen in, in, in nature itself. And for me, the, the simple way for our mind to sort of put the Trinity into, into context is this. You've got water vapor, you've got ice, and you've got water. All three. When you see it, Mr. Ismail, when you see water vapor, what do you see? Water. When you see ice, what do you see? Water. When you see water, what do you see? Water. E- excellent. Uh, excellent. So have you got a question? No, Uh, it's just a model that I'm sort of proposing to him to let him understand the glory of the risen Jesus. Thank you. I think I... (laughs) could I respond to that? I think it's important, brother, that when you make comments, you shouldn't shoot yourself in the foot. If I have three balls of clay, if I have three balls of clay and I press them together into one ball, then they become one. But now it's impossible to retrieve the original three exactly as they were originally. Now, (laughs) if you you say water, hang on, hang on, hang on. By common analogy, if you say that just as water, water, uh, specifically ice, liquid, and steam, they say water is one, but with three states or three forms, so God Almighty is with three states. On the face of it, it might appear to be a compelling argument, but if I have a cup of water, which can become steam, it can become liquid, or it can become ice, then it's not possible for me to drink the liquid while the ice and steam remain inside the glass. It's not possible, it's not not further possible for the liquid to beseech the ice, to save it from being drunk, while the ice stayed a safe distance away and was not itself drunk. So in a similar manner, if God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are all merely three Personalities or three states for one being, then it's not possible for one personality of God to die while the other two remained a safe distance away, unharmed by death.
2: Dr. Craig. I need the mic back on okay uh, what those of you who just applauded that point need to understand is that Jesus didn't die in his divine nature he died in his human nature so that's not a problem but actually I don't like the the model I don't think it's a good model I it seems to me that that's, that teaches modalism which is the idea that the Father Son and Spirit are modes of the same um substance but there, it's not a it's not a good model for three persons in one being um, now I have been told by a chemist that it can be a good model for the Trinity because there's apparently a, a, a something in physics or chemistry called the triple point where he says that H2O can exist simultaneously as steam, water, and ice. Now, I haven't checked this out, but uh, those of you who are interested might look into the chemistry of the so-called triple point in physics to see if whether that's possible. In that case, I think it would become a good model. But uh, barring that, it seems to me that it it teaches modalism rather than uh, orthodox trinitarianism. Thank you, Bill.
1: Now, a question. Next question for Dr. Craig, the gentleman at the microphone. Okay, thank you. It's not really a question for Mr. Craig, because we have noticed
5: that most of the questions from Mr. Ishmael went unanswered. That's why we would like just to bring something to him, like some answers to all these questions. Like, because he hasn't got uh, the answer about why Jesus is called him saying son of man. Because when we go to the Hebrew, we see that son of man is being Adam. And looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Luke, it's been a choice to Adam. Why Jesus has been twice to Adam? We have to understand that Adam after the fall, he has been cursed. So there was a curse. That's why Jesus has to come to die in order to remove that curse. And when Adam sinned, The Bible said that they were dressed in fig leaves. What we know that with the leaves, when the sun shocks you, it gets dry. But the Lord decided that, I don't have a question, I have just to bring something to that. And things like, that's what we see that the Lord killed an animal. And by revelation, we see that that animal is a lamb. Because if we go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 26. I'm sorry, sir, your time is up.
1: Have you got a question?
5: No, no, I just want to hide to Thank what you. has been said.
1: Thank you so much. Do you want to respond to that, Dr. Craig, or should we move on? No, right. We'll, we'll move on to the next question uh, to Dr. Craig this side. From,
3: from the floor side, this is not a statement and the session. This is a question and answer session. So if you're in the row and you do not have a question, and that question needs to be restricted to under 30 seconds, if you
0: do not have a question um, that meets that criteria, then I require you to sit again. Thank you so much.
1: Well, Yes, thank you. Come, come, uh, uh, Madam, come, uh, come ahead.
4: So, mine is a question. Excellent. To both. <laughs> Mr. Craig and Mr. Youssef. And really to all of us. What tonight is, I was worried about it at the beginning, but it's made me think about, and I want to challenge you to think about the significance of this evening is going to be seen in the way we talk about what happened tonight, tomorrow, the way we talk about it tomorrow and the next day. And what does it show about our understanding of God in the way we will talk about it? And if it sh- to me, I was wondering, does it show a God distant and wanting to win and score points and make cheap um score cheap points or does it show in the way we respond to this evening a god who is loving and serving and thank you showing more thank and, you We've and, got, can, we, can we, i just and I, I wanted to because we brought up so many parables i wanted to just raise that parable about which is told of a father
2: who had two sons. Yes,
1: thank you. Well, we know the parable and Dr. Craig and Mr. Iswell can respond to that if they want to. Dr. Craig.
2: I would just say that I second your concern and I hope that my closing statement made it evident that I'm not here just to win cheap debating points, but I'm here uh, to proclaim the good news of the, the gospel and the love of God. Thank you, Dr. Craig.
3: Could I, could I just say one? Yusuf. Thing? Yeah, look, um, I I would agree with that in principle that that the debate should not be relegated to simply cheap polemics. And what I would appeal to my Christian brethren, as I would suggest that Dr. Craig appeals to the Christian audience, and indeed the Muslim audience, is read the New Testament, look into the New Testament, and see whether Jesus in fact really makes these particular claims. Because the more and more that you read it, the more and more you come to the discovery that he goes on to emphasize that he is human and that there is one God. And if this is the only defining factor between Christianity and Islam, then there's no reason why we as Muslims and Christians can come together on a common platform in the worship of one true God.
1: Um, Yusuf, is that, if that's right, why did he allow people to fall down and worship
3: him? Would you like to comment yeah, on that? Yeah. <laughs> is that a question by the, Mo- by by the my, moderator? <laughs> yes. By the moderator. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 interesting to note and since the, if you could give me some kind of, of leeway here you the, the moderator asked a question what about people worshipping Jesus? Now, it's interesting to note that when you look at the New Testament and the Greek New Testament, the word in Greek is proskoneson, which is derived from the root word proskoneho. According to Strong's Concordance, so according to many biblical translations and indeed the dictionaries, they would tell you it means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. And so what you would basically find when you look at similar passages in the Greek Septuagint where the word proskoneson appears, then you'd find, for example, which are not translated as worship but where it's alternatively rendered as falling down before you for example in 1 Samuel 25 23 to 24 it speaks about Abigail she saw David lighted over ass and she fell down before him uh, Elisha she went out and she fell at Elisha's feet um, Joseph's brethren went outside and fell before his feet and in the Greek Septuagint the word is proskameson now the point is most modern translators of the New Testament particularly in the Gospel of Matthew where you find the word worship used, they give the alternative rendering As meaning buying down before you, falling at your feet. In fact, according to Miriam Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, they say that the word um, could basically mean to respect, to reverence, and to adore. And even amongst Muslims today, you'd find many Muslims going to the mausoleums and buying down before many saints. And they would tell you they're not worshipping the dead saint, they're basically paying obeisance, howsoever it might be a cultural practice. So, similarly, from the biblical point of view, you find these same passages where we are told that the People worship Jesus, there are alternative renderings to that in other Gospels where it's simply translated as falling down before Him. Thank and
1: you, if you apply the you argument. Yourself, I must stop you. I you. you to go on. I must stop thank
2: you Dr. Craig, do you want to comment on my question? Sure. Very briefly. Proskinao um, means to prostate, prostrate oneself in adoration. Uh, and the context would be. Uh, Key to understanding how it's used in the sense of worship or just uh paying homage and one of the passages i quoted is uh john 20 28 where thomas falls down before jesus and says my lord and my god he uses the words lord and god of jesus and jesus doesn't rebuke thomas he says thomas have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who believe without having seen so i think the moderator's point is correct it's jesus reaction to to the way people worship him that indicates that this man didn't think of himself as a mere human being. For to sanction that kind of activity would indeed be idolatrous. Thank so you, you I, very could much. Could I respond to uh, that, uh, Mr. Chairman? No, I oh, think we, we, we,
3: we must,
1: we must uh, we, the gentleman here, you've got a question coming, uh, Yusuf.
0: My question is going towards uh, Mr. Isma. Um, of all the Quranic text I have here, and I'm willing to to submit it. I want to limit myself to chapter 4 of the Quran, verse 171, where he says, Jesus Christ is the spirit of God, the word of God, and also Messiah. And this, uh, to me, it would be difficult if someone would separate you, Mr. Ismail, your word, your spirit. I'm sure we wouldn't want to see how you will look like. (laughs) Therefore, (laughs) therefore, I, I know that you don't want to detect that particular Quran, chapter 4, verse 171. Not only that, if God is the only one that can save, and Jesus Christ is the only one that is referred to as Messiah, Masihi, in Arabic, why wouldn't we baptize you if you want? <laughs>
3: Thank you. You, you Yourself to respond to that. Thank you for that, brother. In fact, the quotation, Surah 4, verse 171, actually goes against what you're trying to imply to the audience. What does it say here? Look at Surah 4, 171. It says, O people of the book, it's addressing you, sir. It says, O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of God, But the truth Christ Jesus the son of Mary was no more than an apostle of God in other words It's saying that he was not God so I can't see how you're using that passage to prove that he was divine It says Christ Jesus the son of Mary Hang on was no more was no more than an apostle of God and his word which proceeded from God now when we speak about Jesus being the word of God we believe that each and every single human being is a word of God why because in the Quran there is a proclamation which says kun faya kun, be and it is it is by the will the power and the word of God that each and every single human being lives here and so if Jesus was a word of God then he would be no different from us regarding the aspect about Jesus being the Messiah and why don't we accept him as god well what do you say about the fact that in the old testament you find in isaiah chapter 45 verse 1 god tells david thus said to his anointed messiah cyrus a pagan with your right hand shall you subdue nations and you find pots and pans, David, Solomon, they're all referred to as Messiah. So the fact that Jesus was a Messiah simply means that he was anointed or consecrated to a particular position. But it in no way implies that he was God. In fact, in John's Gospel, in John 10, once Jesus refutes the allegations that he was ambiguous in respect to his claims to being the Messiah, then they make the second allegation that he's claiming to be divine. And then he goes on to rebut that particular allegation as well. So the verse you're basically quoting Goes against your initial presuppositions. Thank you very much. <coughs> well, I, Bill. Okay.
1: Uh, this we uh, to. Uh, I, think, I think we've got to hear Dr. Craig
2: now. Thank you very much. <laughs> Responding there. Uh, I agree that the Quran does not teach the divinity of Jesus. I just think that it's mistaken in so doing, and that's why I don't, one of the reasons I don't regard the Quran as a revelation from God, because I think it's got it wrong about Jesus, in particular, it's got it wrong about the crucifixion. The Quran says they did not crucify him, they did not kill him, and that is just historically demonstrably Incorrect, so uh, I think that Muhammad though in some ways a a, a Great religious leader in that he promoted monotheism and the oneness of God against the pagan Polytheism that was in Arabia at that time. I think he went off the correct path when he denied the deity of Jesus and uh, began to condemn Uh, Christians to hell for their uh, blasphemous beliefs that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and is divine. So the case that I've presented tonight is an attempt to show why I think it's more rational to be a Christian monotheist than a Muslim monotheist.
1: Thank you Dr. Craig. I'd like to take one more question. I think it's this side, Dr. Craig's side. Yes. Good
0: evening. Uh, welcome, Dr. Craig. Thank you. Um, I am a little bit quarreled why you didn't tackle the question by Brother Ishmael about the development of the uh, Testament, the Gospels. Uh, we know, for example, that there was political strife in the uh, Roman Empire at the time, and and, and, and clearly this seems to propound... Um, the Roman uh, paganism of the time, and 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 this is all that you're proving here tonight. Um, so, with with the gospels developing the way that they are, um, it doesn't say anything about uh, worshiping God. It just brings in um, uh, Jesus as. Uh,
1: Thank I think you, you previously I, 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 mentioned Mithra. I think we've got the question,
2: Dr. Craig. Yeah. Well, the reason I didn't talk about the synoptic problem or the development of theology within the Gospels is because it wasn't relevant to tonight's question. Tonight's question was identifying Jesus. Is he man, that is to say merely man, or is he both God and man? And my case for the humanity and divinity of Jesus doesn't depend upon any particular view of the development of the synoptic Gospels or the theology of the New Testament. What I do is I use the methods of modern biblical historical criticism to drive back to the historical Jesus using these criteria of authenticity and show that the historical Jesus himself made claims which imply his divine human status. So all of these other points are later subsequent issues that can be addressed later on in another occasion we're not interested here in biblical inerrancy or the synoptic problem we're interested in understanding who jesus was what did he think of himself and my claim is that when you look at the historically authentic words of jesus you find a person who as c.s lewis said cannot be dismissed as just another human teacher, as the Quran claims. He was either a nutcase, or he was a blasphemer, or he was who he said he was. And I think that he was who he said he was because of the very persuasive evidence for his resurrection from the dead. As the moderator said, the real question is, is Jesus alive today? If, if he has risen from the dead, then he must have been who he claimed to be. And, and so that's my case. It's, it's resting on these two points. And these other points, though, interesting, and important are points for another day they're not relevant tonight.
3: Thank
1: you very uh, much, uh, Bill. and I, finally, uh, from yusuf
2: I think, I think
3: the, the question is question cannot be dismissed because it's an important issue. The synoptic sorry. problem is an important issue As it's a I source, mentioned,
0: uh, sorry it's a source of, of, of of the whole debate, not so.
3: Well, it is a source because I basically pointed out which Dr. Craig never denied, which scholars throughout the world state that the gospels are not historical accounts, but basically they are apologetic words, works to prove certain particular theological motifs. And as I showed you earlier on that there was a development in Matthew's gospel, you'd for example, find a particular view of Jesus, which was humanly. And as you go from one gospel to the next, to the next, you find an evolved idea an evolved concept of Jesus. The other point about the statements and the radical claims made by Jesus, all those claims where you want to prove or assume or adduce the divinity of Christ, you have to read into the text. It's implied. In other words, he says... Um, To the high priest are you the Christ the son of the living God and he says yes I am so it basically is an implication and you have to read into that particular interpretation and so in light of that that's why you find someone like uh, William Ellery Channing who had to go out of his basic way to suggest and conclude that We do not find in the epistles a trace of the strange phaseology where Jesus says I speak this as God and I speak that as man. It was not needed in that particular day. It was demanded by the errors of a later age. And if it was demanded by the errors of a later age, then in other words, for the purpose of reconciling certain passages which are just criticism can in a great degree express, then you have to basically invent a hypothesis far more difficult and involving a gross absurdity in order to prove that jesus was god why not go back to the quranic point of view and the new testament where jesus proclaims that he's human and he goes out of his way to emphasize his humanity thank you so very much
2: for more go to reasonablefaith.org